My name is MD. My name is Kyle. And you are listening to The Completist, a podcast where two music fans come to terms with the albums and artists that have shaped pop culture. Welcome to episode 13, and today we will examine Fleetwood Mac's 1977 album, Rumors. Well, Rumors is one of the defining albums of the 70s. You know, if Thriller by Michael Jackson defines the 80s and Nevermind maybe defines the 90s, I feel like Rumors, in terms of its record sales and in terms of its lasting impact and popularity, certainly seems to exemplify a lot of what people were digging about kind of 70s production, 70s pop music and stuff. Definitely. Fleetwood Mac had existed as a band going all the way back into the late 60s, started out as kind of a blues effort, and eventually morphed as various members of the band kind of changed out. Founding members Mick Fleetwood, the drummer, and John McVie, the bass player. That's where you get the name Fleetwood Mac is from those two guys. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to the album Rumors, which emerges in 1977, recorded in 76, really the dynamics of the band have changed significantly from those earlier albums. Isn't this maybe like their 10th record? This is their 11th, 11th actually. Okay. <laughs> Amazingly, in, in 10 years, you know, right. they've, they've made all of, all of these records. And, you know, after, after that early shift from kind of the bluesier stuff, that, you know, at least the narrative is that they were, they were kind of aimless, kind of looking for a new direction, kind of looking for that guiding force. And when Lindsey Buckingham, the uh, male vocalist and songwriter and guitarist, came on board along with Stevie Nicks. Mm -hmm. Buckingham Nicks. Yeah. Right. And uh, so she was just a vocalist. Uh, I think she played a little tambourine, but she was also a songwriter. And when Buckingham and Nicks join Fleetwood Mac, that really seems to solidify the sound that most people now would associate with Fleetwood Mac. I mean, that's where mm -hmm. you, the 1975 self-titled album right. is where you get the, the hits, Rihanna. Mm -hmm. And Landslide. Although Landslide didn't really become a hit at that time, it wasn't a single, I don't think, initially. It kind of gained some additional uh, popularity, kind of looking back um, mm -hmm. later. So, Kyle, for me, Fleetwood Mac was never a band I've spent very much time with. I mean, I know my parents liked Fleetwood Mac. I mean, of course, they're, they're of the era where they would have heard the, the self-titled and they would have been around during rumors and, and kind of all of that, but... I mean, my dad didn't have the record in the house, so I never really heard it. Mm -hmm. um, heard, you know, obviously the, some of the radio hits I had heard over the course of time. But Fleetwood Mac is just one of those things, and Rumors is one of those albums that has always kind of been on my blind spots list. You know, I kind of always intend to get around to it, but never have until we talked about doing the album on this podcast. It's exactly the same for me. I mean, I had a friend in high school who made a pitch to me and spent quite a bit of time with it. It just didn't stick for me at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm like you. I remember kind of in the background of FM radio and, and his brief pitch to me, just all the kind of FM singles, but then going out of his way to maybe pitch and never going back again for the guitar parts and that sort of thing. Um, and then I recently, you know, caught up and uh, asked my dad about the context that he might have had for him back yeah. in the 70s. and. He definitely appreciates the musicianship and was able to uh, cite a handful of songs. And he worked in hi-fi at the time, hi-fi stereo equipment. Yeah. And uh, he remembers specifically it being somewhat of a guilty pleasure. They would play it in the uh, shops there because of the, the fidelity of it. I mean, it right. sounded great and just made all their systems sound really good. Mm -hmm. And he would kind of brush it off a little bit as a bit of a Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of knockoff. That was definitely his standard right. as far as acoustic guitars and vocals and that sort of thing. But I, I think probably secretly just very much enjoying that. Why don't we dig into the album and start talking through each of the songs? Sure. So side one, track one, is Secondhand News. And you might notice over the course of this album, you get some different dynamics because you've got three main songwriters writing here. And this is a Lindsey Buckingham track. You know, he had come on, not one of the founding members, but he really kind of takes hold of the band and really seems to, I don't know, this is one of his kind of staking his claim in the band kind of songs, it feels like to me. Right, and that's a thread that follows through the record that we'll discuss more, even songs that he didn't write. He uh, definitely uh, puts his stamp on it. It's a high-energy opener. 
Uh, you've got the guitars and the rhythm. You've kind of got that unusual percussion that kind of boom, 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 boom. And what is that? I think that was actually playing playing drums on one of the vinyl chairs, just office chairs that they had in the studio with them. So you've got a drum track, obviously, there too, but kind of that additional. Right. It's got this kind of Celtic kind of galloping thing that Mm kind of carries. Uh, kind of the foundation rhythm for the track. Apparently, they were trying to emulate jive talking by the Bee Gees. Right. So it's funny to see, you know, the Fleetwood Mac interpretation of this disco hit. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's something we encounter over and over again with these. Uh, with these artists, when they cite a particular influence, it's typically not just some sort of one-for-one. It's kind of their reinterpretation of it, which is kind of the beauty yeah. of it. I mean, that's how all artists are. We're all inspired a certain way, and we can cite an inspiration, but that doesn't mean it kind of spits out as a one-for-one. <laughs> exactly. I mean, 1977, I think disco is picking up steam and becoming a major pop music form at this point. But, I mean, Fleetwood Mac is pretty far from kind of the disco funk and, and whatnot. Right, so. right. And I, I, I love, uh, again, the intro uh, of this song for the record and Lindsay staking his claim on that. And we're already getting pretty much kind of the way that he likes to color these tracks with the multiple layers. We get a lot of 12 string on this record. Mm-hmm. And so you've got those kind of harmonics and 12 string already introduced there. You get that great like percussion vocal kind of chorus there. Mm-hmm, that bow, bow, bow. Exactly. And the structure of the song is very interesting, too. So you've got, yeah, again, what you would call a chorus there, which is these nonsense kind of <laughs> rhythmic syllables. And then you really don't get, in my opinion, kind of the, the hook right. until the end of the song. You get all the secondhand news stuff at the tail of the yeah, song. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a chorus. I mean, it feels it sits like a chorus in, in terms of a pop structure. But, it, you know, I mean, it's just a melody. It's just a melody that they've kind of... Mm-hmm made with uh, with vocal nonsense. Right, so it's got this real kind of instinctual kind of intuitiveness to it. And, you know, it, speaking of intuitiveness, like my girls love this song. I mean, I, I played this for yeah. them in the car and they just, that's their favorite part, you know, because that's something they can sing along to is just kind of vocal nonsense, you know, and that, that connects to children on a deep level. So Definitely. So what do you think he's getting at with some of the content of this? It's pretty brief. Yeah, I mean... You know, the context for the album, of course, is is well-trod. I mean, everyone kind of seems to know a little bit of the backstory that mm-hmm. you've got all the interpersonal dynamics of the band have sort of fallen apart. So Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks were an item when they came into the band. They started to break up, have their issues. And then, you know, they're writing songs kind of against each other and about uh, their frustrations with each other and their their kind of discontentment with love and whatnot. Which, again, is kind of a recurring theme. As we get through the record, obviously, they struggle to maintain their personal relationships, but they have this professional relationship in which they talk about their personal relationships, and they seem to work very well together in the professional setting, just yeah. not in the personal setting. Yeah, that's one of the great ironies of the album, and right. I think something that people continue to connect with about it. And, of course, John McVie and Christine McVie were, were husband and wife, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure exactly what the story was, whether there was some infidelity or something. But right. at this point, they've either separated or are starting to get a divorce. And they're kind of at each other's throats emotionally, too. Mm-hmm. And then Mick Fleetwood, you know, the drummer, kind of the, the, the guiding, patriarch. the yeah. patriarch, so yeah. to speak, although he's just a couple years older than everyone else, is has his own issues where his wife is having an affair or something with right. like the lighting technician or something from the band. And so he's dealing with all of that. So everyone is kind of in their own state of flux in terms of their own relationships. So this album is definitely about relationships and Mm -hmm. some of those interpersonal dynamics. And like you said, like one of the interesting things is that they're writing songs about each other. I mean, breakup albums are nothing new in the history of rock music. But rarely are you writing the songs about your breakup and about your ex and then having them perform alongside you doing the backup vocals well, and like learning the lyrics. Well, and- <laughs> you've got that uh, irony even in this song where he says something to the effect, I'm going to miss you when you're gone. Right. Well, she's not gone. Like yeah. she's <laughs> singing the song with him. Yeah. So you get like a childish line, like uh, lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff. I right. mean, it's almost like 
I don't know. I get this image of almost like a like an animal that you're returning to the wild, and you're just kind of taking him out into this field and just kind of, all right, go be free. Like just let me do whatever I want to do, free yeah. from you and your pursue your, your all, all your instinctual desires and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, just just kind of let me do my stuff. Like <laughs> I don't want to be judged by you or kind of have any sort of sense of oversight from anyone else. I mean, you know, just sense, let me be free. Right. In a sense, it's a pretty lousy line, but it's a very honest line that speaks to kind of their their realm of understanding and relationships. Yeah, and I think that that is representative of where Lindsey Buckingham seems to be coming from, at least emotionally, the sense that I get is he just kind of wants to be free to do his own thing. He doesn't want to be hampered by any sort of sense of commitment or you know, being responsible to someone else. And I get that sense both artistically, you know, he wants to have control. He wants to kind of set the parameters of how people interact with him and judge everything. And he wants to judge others, but he doesn't want to be judged himself, you know? And so that's, that's kind of always there. So track two is dreams. And this is Stevie Nicks wrote this one. So if, uh, if Lindsey Buckingham kind of gets his punches in early, it's almost like Stevie Nicks kind of comes back with her own kind of... And you get that kind of back and forth in this album with, with those sorts of things. I mean, she just jumps right in behind him. Opening lines are like, well, now here you go again. You say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? You know, I mean, he wants to be free to go do his stuff. And she's like, well, fine, like, go do your stuff. Kind of destroy yourself for all I care. Right. She um, seems to take a bit of the... Um higher road uh, in her approach to uh, a lot of these issues and seems to have a bit more reflectiveness and maturity. She does. And well, I mean, part of that is I think she's a better songwriter and a better lyricist than him. But yeah, I mean, like that sort of sense of reflection or perspective, maybe she seems to have a little bit more of that than 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 anyone else in the band, at least in terms of the songwriting, because you get lines like, but listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness, like a heartbeat drives you mad. So, I mean, you're free to go do your stuff, but then at some point you're also, she recognizes that you're going to want something of this relationship and you're going to miss something of what we shared, whether that's with me or with somebody else. But like, I don't know, at some point she seems to think that he's going to regret some of this some of this desire to just push out and do his own thing. Exactly. Like you mentioned earlier, this was the highest charting song from the record, mm-hmm. which I find um, very interesting because the structure of this song kind of, to me, seems to break a lot of rules. The whole thing is built around what I would typically call like a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, typically in a song, you would have a root and you would kind of go a one, four, five or something like that. This one just sticks on the four and the five and it just kind of right. uh, ping pongs back and forth between the four and the five. And every once in a while, it kind of resolves to kind of a sad minor, but it gives the song tons of tension to go with the lyrics to the degree to where, as I understand it, I bet the song was very frustrating in its demo form to even hear the song yeah. there because it just seems to have this never ending kind of circular nature to it to where it's like, okay, where is this thing going? But I think that's the beauty of it. And again, that's where we get the strength of somebody like a Buckingham, mm-hmm. who, again, interestingly enough, Stevie's singing this about him, and he comes in and takes a certain degree of control over what's being represented in the right. content and the music, and he makes it all the better for that, whether it's the the, uh, the layering of the guitars, the volume swells, mm-hmm. which is definitely something that he really enjoys in this record, and some of the rotary speaker kind of effects that he's getting on his guitars. Um, It's a great arrangement for what, again, I suspect would have otherwise been a pretty frustrating demo. Yeah, and that's what I read about the demo was that she wrote it on piano and it was very sparse. It was very simple. I think she wrote it kind of in the studio um, in one of the rooms that wasn't being used while they weren't needing her for, for cutting some of the tracks at that moment. And she kind of laid out the song, recorded, you know, a demo version, brought it to the band. And at first they weren't real keen on it. Sure. But, um, you know, I guess Buckingham kind of took some control of it and said, well, maybe we can make it work. And, you know, he ends up helping to craft this song kind of about him in a, in a derogatory way. Right. Yet makes it one of the standout tracks on the album. Sure. And uh, the song that charted the highest. And, you know, it's, it's a great track. And, you know, in the last podcast, we talked about... Um, Tom Petty and mm-hmm. Free Fallen. And Free Fallen is almost a good kind of 
A-B kind of comparison because yeah, it's, it's very similar where there's not a whole lot of chord changes and stuff. You know, right. it's a very simple line. But w- and this has that same sort of feeling that but there's more tension here. It's more of a driving right. kind of song. But there's still that same sort of differentiation between what you would feel like is a conventional chorus and a conventional verse and maybe more of a bridge kind of thrown in. In terms of the actual musical, I guess, structure of it, you don't see that, you know, charted out on the page. Right. It's just, it's the dynamics. Because yeah. again, the structure of it on paper is terribly simple, but you just have all of the instincts and nuances of the players, specifically Lindsey Buckingham, adding everything from the acoustics to the volume swells and then getting uh, the kind of arpeggiated picking lines to mm-hmm. accentuate certain parts. And then, of course, to top it all off, you get the nuances. Uh, and the beauty of uh, Stevie's vocals yeah. on this track. And I love, she gives all these just kind of subtle nuances of kind of grit um, in the lines where she's saying, like, women, they'll come and they'll go. That's a, that's a, that's a tough line for her to sing. And then I really kind of feel it the last time she sings it. It feels like there's kind of a tiredness and a fatigue and a certain amount of conviction yeah. uh, in kind of that last turnaround in the song. And I love the kind of the dreamlike quality. And she kind of has almost like this floating kind of way of singing the song to where you're not bogged down with it at all. You're just kind of floating along with it. And I love it. I, I mean, I'd never spent a whole lot of time with Stevie Nicks. Obviously, she's she's the, of all the people in Fleetwood Mac, she's the one that kind of rises to the surface the most. I think she's the most talented of the group. Sure. And, you know, she had a little more success in her solo career and everything. And, of course, she went out there and, and joined, uh, did duets with a number of different people, oh, yeah. often pops up as backing vocals on all sorts of different kinds of tracks. Right, you mentioned Tom Petty earlier. You know, she had the track, uh, Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Stop Dragging My Heart She did a great duet with him on his... Um, Hard Promises record, a song called The Insider. Which is a fabulous song. And from what I understand, um, she was really kind of banging on his door to be a heartbreaker. Yeah. Uh, she seems to be obviously very strong out front, but uh, when she sees something as strong as like a Tom Petty or something like that, she just wants to be a part of that. Um, that didn't exactly happen. Um but thankfully, you know, we get more uh, diverse aspects of her career and, of course, Tom Petty's career from uh, those relationships. Never Going Back Again is track three. We're back to Lindsey Buckingham. And this feels like kind of a folksy holdover from the 60s. You've got the double vocals there. It's not group vocals like we're getting on the other tracks. Yeah, it's just um, Lindsey plus Lindsey. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, it's short and sweet and to the point. I mean, that's part of the... I guess that's part of the charm of maybe a Fleetwood Mac is they're not going to belabor, they're not going to draw this out into like a four or five minute or six minute, you know, some of those 60s things, you know, it's like mm-hmm. seven minutes of like all this like kind of acoustic noodling and everything. And yeah, I mean, this would have been pretty rebellious at the time relative to um, what else was going on. Yeah. So this isn't prog rock or anything, you know, you're not going to get a huge kind of yes, sort of like right. <laughs> sort of craziness, but it's... It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. It's a simple song. I feel like there's a couple ways to take it. I mean, is he singing about an old relationship or is this the new relationship? She broke down and let me in, made me see where I've been. I mean, it's kind of regret versus resolve, I guess, there. It seems kind of semi-reflective, but maybe that's the most reflection we get from him. Yeah, we don't seem to get the same sort of reflection that we get from Stevie. Exactly. The cheery music kind of belies some of the brooding sentiments underneath, and that's, I guess that's rumors, really. I mean, that's the music is often very cheerful, kind of very poppy. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a lot of the, the group vocals and everything happening, the bright acoustics and everything. Mm-hmm. Very bright. But then you read the lyrics and they're dark and mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of jabbing at each other and they're kind of cutting at times. And you come away sometimes amazed that they were able to actually make this record uh, together as a mm-hmm. group. Never Going Back Again. This is a song I struggle with in the context of the record. I get where it falls thematically, but the structure of the song, 
I just feel like it's very forced in and of itself and to get it onto the record. It really just kind of feels like Lindsay had this great, uh, very clever and well-executed acoustic rendition, uh, like you said, this kind of folksy piece, and they just really had to get it on the record. He had yeah. to figure out some way to get it on the record. <laughs> and so he just kind of smashes these uh, themes on top of the, the song. It just feels real forced to me. I've just never been a big fan of it. It feels like it would make for a great B-side. Um, I just feel like this is a pretty disposable track from the record. Well, I know you're a big kind of Crosby, Stills, and Nash fan. Yeah. I mean, I know that would have been more your dad's beat over Fleetwood Mac. You kind of mm -hmm. said that in the intro. Right. And a song like by Crosby, Stills, and Nash called You Don't Have to Cry. Right, from the first record, yeah. Yeah, I, I get some similarities there, but of course, Fleetwood Mac seems to always opt for simpler melody constructions yeah. than, than what uh, CSN is going for. Right, and that's where on this side, when they air to those simple structures where it can be um, very helpful in other songs, to me, it just makes this song feel that much more thin. Yeah, I mean, I like the song. I, f I think it's cheerful. My wife really connects with this mm -hmm. one, but... Again, you're listening to two people who didn't grow up just loving rumors and kind of it, it always being kind of in the background of everything, like a lot of people grow up on the Beatles. Right. So we something. apologize so. if these songs are kind of sacred to you. We, we're just, we don't fall into that category. Track four is Don't Stop. And this is the first time we get to a Christine McVie track on the album. Uh, this is really, this is one of those I had heard before. It's gotten a lot of radio play. Um, <laughs> Funnily enough, I guess it was used as a campaign song for Bill Clinton back right. in 1992, which is kind of ironic when you consider some of the 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 relationship dynamics of the song and right what, some what, foreshadowing or yeah, something. what kind of became revealed of Clinton and his his infidelities and whatnot. But you've got this optimism on the surface with lines like, "If your life was bad to you." Just think what tomorrow will do, and so like the optimism suddenly turns cynical. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think your life was bad, just wait till tomorrow. Like, right, exactly. I don't know. Like that doesn't that doesn't sound comforting anymore. That sounds like oh, we'll just wait. It's gonna get worse. Um, I'm ashamed to say I didn't even realize there were two vocals on this song. Oh yeah, you know, you've got the Lindsey Buckingham vocal, and then second verse you've got the uh, Christine McVie vocal. Okay. I'm just such a, I, I've always been such a passive Fleetwood Mac listener. Like mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier, I only recently realized that there were two different vocals. So again, it's embarrassing for me to even admit that, but that's just the truth. Right. Of it. Well, and Christine does have a little bit of a deeper voice. She doesn't kind of chart in those higher registries like Stevie does. Yeah, she's pretty mannish. <laughs> This is almost like the perfect re-encapsulation of where Fleetwood Mac is in a band at this point, I feel mm -hmm. like. You still got kind of the blues shuffle underneath, so it's kind of mm -hmm. reminiscent of kind of where they came from. You know, I mean, it's almost like all that's left is kind of the driving rhythm of that old era of blues stuff. You've got a track like Stop Messing Around off of Mr. Wonderful from 1968. <laughs> But then you add to something like that, the staccato piano with that swe the sweeping electric lines. Mm -hmm. The vocals still have almost like a small room, almost blues bar feel to them, to me on this one. Well, I'm getting a lot of stones in this track, really. Okay. I, I, of course, the vocals, but then you mentioned the guitar, too. It reminds me a lot of those great kind of squeaky squawky Keith Richards lines, like from Sympathy for the Devil. <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah. That's a, that's a lot of what I'm getting from this, and I, that's kind of a recurring theme, too. I feel like he's he's a big Stones fan. I kind of always kind of hear that peeking through in the background there. Go Your Own Way is track five. This was the huge hit, I feel like, because it's the one I was most familiar with without any context of Fleetwood Mac. Right. And this is another one that's easy to appropriate as maybe being more optimistic than it actually is. I mean, <laughs> go your own way kind of has this big kind of anthemic feeling. Kind and of yet a sense you, of freedom, maybe. Right. But then you read the lyrics and it's it's kind of like a middle finger to to this person that who's actually singing in the vocal booth right next to you. Right. The whole packing up, shacking up. I mean, that's tough. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's rude. Yeah, loving you isn't the right thing to do. Uh, man, 
some of these lines. I mean, just like the fact that they were able to hold it together and just continue to make this. I can see why that why that narrative continues to connect with people, and maybe was part of the reason for. I don't. I don't want to say that it's part of the reason that the album succeeded because I don't know that people were really buying into kind of the narrative behind the making of the album so much. But at least this, not at the time, maybe right. I don't know. So this, but this is a case where I think more people maybe knew about some of the stories, and maybe appreciated part of how it came together. So, mm-hmm. uh, and again, we get all these dense layers again from Lindsay. This is where we get the strength of that. Of course, the loves that twelve string in there, and of course, the bass gives everything a lot of great movement. The um, solo, the guitar solo on this song was uh, actually comped from various takes and what that means again various takes you um, had quite a few different ideas and then from those ideas you would compile those into kind of one seamless take for Mm -hmm. the record and I think if you listen to the song in headphones for example you can hear that kind of move from left to right the way that they were mixed to the degree that it reminds me of how much of a musical process it was even for the mixing Mm -hmm. um, of the song and so you would actually have the engineer um, who's familiar with the various takes at the faders manually moving these in and out almost like a keyboard of sorts okay and so you get this really great um, dynamic guitar solo that's a combination of quite a few different takes that's part of what Fleetwood Mac with rumors really carries there's a there's an effortlessness that it it comes across to you as a listener when there's a lot of intention and a lot of work that goes into every one of these songs so you listen Mm -hmm. on the record a lot of it you know you it's a pop song it just kind of sounds simple and you kind of miss really i mean you miss how intense the process was and how complex the process may have been to even just create like a guitar solo like what you said i mean you know when they played it live of course he would he could play all the parts together yeah but somehow, you know, in the studio to just find exactly the right dynamic or the right little sustain on this one note or whatever, you know, they, they kind of cut it up and brought it from a bunch of different places. Yeah, and the drums are the same way on this song. You get those kind of awkward, kind of offbeat drums on yeah, the Yeah, it's verses. an unusual rhythm coming into this song. Yeah, and that's... Like, what, where's the one, right? Exactly, and I'd be surprised if Mick Fleetwood could tell you that. I mean, he's such a kind of caveman intuitive kind of player to where I don't think on paper he could even break it down for you. Mm-hmm. He just instinctually kind of approaches it. Now, that said, I gather that Lindsay may have kind of dictated a certain feel for yeah. it and then Mick uh, interpreted it mm-hmm. that way. But to get the distinction between the verse and the chorus on this, and so you have that kind of offbeat, uh, very interesting thing happening on the verse, and everything kind of flattens out and straightens out in the chorus, just to give you that distinction. You know, as a listener, it feels like, oh, well, that makes sense. But yeah, to come to that conclusion and have the guts to play it that way takes a lot of commitment. Yeah. And I guess that's where, where Mick Fleetwood maybe, as a founding member, as a you know patriarch member, kind of a guiding force underneath everything, even though he's not a songwriter and mm-hmm. he doesn't kind of direct the main kind of sonic and aesthetic sounds of the band. And yet still, he's he's kind of there as a very consistent rhythm section. Him and sure. John McVie both kind of really carry along this band in a, in a very um, dynamic way, I guess. Yeah, I think anybody else at the time who would have approached it maybe would have approached it with more finesse, mm-hmm. but it just wouldn't have the same kind of instinct and intuition about these parts. Well, track six is Songbird. This is another Christine McVie track, and this closes outside one on the vinyl. To me, I don't know. This is this is kind of the weakest song on the album. I agree. Um, you know, it's, it's not bad so much as it is just kind of forgettable on an album that's so stacked with kind of singles and great moments and big choruses and kind of great vocal performances. You know, it's almost like, it, I mean, it's an acoustic ballad, but I almost want to hear Landslide off of the, mm-hmm. the 75 self-titled. Yeah, this one just kind of feels real maudlin and overly sentimental and definitely doesn't fit with the weight and breadth of the other tracks. I mean, it may be unfair, but the difference between this and a landslide, I feel like is, is both there in the lyrics as well as the vocal performance, because you don't, you don't get that kind of dynamic vocal performance that you'd want maybe off of 
what what is ostensibly just a, a very simple kind of acoustic ballad. I mean, mm-hmm. all you have there is is an acoustic instrument, a piano in this case, and then the vocal, and that's what carries the song. Mm-hmm. And if if you're not able to really deliver on the vocal side of it, I mean, there's not a whole lot going on musically. Yeah, I mean, the, the vocals to me are a complete yawn on this track. Maybe to tie in a, a contemporary reference, you've got something like Carol King. But, you know, this this doesn't live in the same nope. area as like a tapestry. And that song was Will You Love Me Tomorrow. I mean, that's 1971. But like, the, the, I don't know, like Carol King is she Carol King doesn't have like the greatest, most beautiful voice in the world. Mm-hmm. But there's something emotionally rich mm-hmm. and uh, engaging about it. And that's what I feel like I'm missing on this one. Sure. I gather that there are. Uh, a lot of folks that really have connected with this song over the years. I believe you could probably go to YouTube and find millions of covers of this song. Mm-hmm. People love this song. I'm just not one of them. Yeah. I mean, to me, I would almost want... Um, there's a B-side track that didn't get included on Rumors. Uh, I think it, it kind of got some play later in the 90s when they reformed and everything. Everybody came back and was kind of happy with each other and stuff. It's called Silver Springs. Right. Of course, that's a Stevie Nicks track, and much more. You know, it's not an acoustic ballad. It's got more of the country kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, and it's a full band track. But I mean, to me, like that's that's what I want to live here at the end of side one, definitely, rather than Songbird. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I could do without this one. Well, what I can't do without is track seven, The Chain. I mean, this is this is a great song. And this one gets credited to all the members of the band because they all contributed some part to it. I think the main kind of verses were something that Christine had come up with. But it was kind of a, a hodgepodge from ideas from every mm-hmm. member of the band kind of contributing something. And so, I mean, you can feel that even in the song. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of dynamics between the different parts of it and... Yeah, and this is where we get a stronger sense of their um, debt to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Okay. I mean, and they and they admit that too. Not in this song specifically necessarily, but just generally overall the way they approach things. I definitely get a strong sense of that on the approach on the vocals. Although, again, um, it's just not the same. It's not the same richness, and I find the acoustic guitars are definitely thinner than what you get from a Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's just a preference thing for me. Okay. Um, I just don't get quite uh, the richness and denseness that I would get from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but it's definitely inspired by that. I mean, you've got two main parts here. You've kind of got the main chain, I guess. And then you've got this whole up-tempo outro with kind of the jangly guitars and the chain will keep us together. You know, it's an interesting sentiment when you consider where the band is. I mean, they're, like we mentioned earlier, I mean, their commitment to relationships is so poor, and yet their commitment to their music collectively is so strong mm-hmm. to, to kind of band together, you know, to, to use the pun, <laughs> and to, to make, you know, one of the defining albums of the decade. Right. I mean... Maybe that's the chain. Maybe the yeah. music and the, this idea of making something beyond themselves and recognizing that, okay, you know, we've we've kind of changed the direction of this band. It's existed as an entity for a while, but coming together and, and kind of like, this is greater than any of us kind of splitting out and doing our own thing. So maybe we'll, we'll commit together to to kind of work out this this album and see if we can't make something that's really beautiful and interesting and, and we'll connect with people. Yeah, I get that in this track. What I love about this song is that, that guitar solo. And uh, it, it, I don't know, it's, it, it has a little bit of kind of a Leonard Skinner Freebird thing. Well, Maybe maybe if like Neil Young played it. Right, but. right. You say you love it. This is the kind of thing I don't love about this song. Right? Why? You know that he has that kind of mean bass 
kind of thing. Oh, yeah. That's and, and in my mind, I kind of want to hear Lars Ulrich behind that and turn that into like a Master of Puppets. <laughs> turn it into a metal song. Exactly. I mean, you know. That is a good metal bass riff, though. I'm getting the vibe on that, but then they double time it, and I'm just... It's just not my thing. It's one of those things, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. I mean, this is another one where you you look at it in the context of the 70s. I mean, this could yeah. have been a seven-minute-long song. Or like Freebird. I mean, that was like eight or nine minutes right, or something. So, I, I, yeah, I'll definitely give them that. I definitely appreciate their uh, commitment to you know conciseness and brevity. But I don't know. I love this song. <laughs> I, I love the way that it ends. And I'll take you to task. I'm like, man, I'll, I'll take the guitar solo any day of the week. But You Make Love and Fun is track eight. And here's Christine McVie again. She gets a lot of, I've, she gets four songs on this record as opposed to Buckingham gets three and Nix gets three. And of course, um, the collective band gets one. Um, maybe that's a, I don't know, maybe that's a tenure thing. She had been a part of the band, I think, since 1971. Mm-hmm. So a little longer than, uh, than Buckingham or Nix. But I don't know. I, I, there's a nice beat, driving rhythm. I think they tracked with a Fender Rhodes and maybe dubbed in with a with a clavinet. Clavinet, yeah. That we would be, uh, at least for me, I would be mostly familiar with something like Stevie Wonder's Superstition. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of kind of standard issue funk stuff, you know. Exactly. It gives you the funk, and the reason they go to that typically is because it's got such a percussive nature to yeah. it as opposed to like a Rhodes or something that's super mellow and yeah. soft and typically is bedded underneath other things that clavinet always gives a lot of snap and spank to whatever it is that you're playing and I read that the early tracking for this was done without Lindsey Buckingham and this is Christine felt like she got a lot of control on this one and was kind of able to, to make it the way that she wanted maybe she felt a little constrained by, by some of the force that was Lindsey Buckingham but it ended up being a track that she felt like she got to do a lot of what she wanted to with it. and But Lindsay does a lot of great stuff on this track. And actually, some of my favorite parts of this track are what Lindsay brings to it. Okay, so what does he bring? You know, some of the choppy guitars that you get during the verses. And then it opens up to those nice kind of more open uh, picked lines leading into the choruses. I always just feel like he's just playing right into the pockets of this song in a way that's just super tasty to me. I really like it. Yeah. Thematically, this is one of those songs where you kind of cringe a little bit because it's a song about her lover whom she's having an affair with. And, you know, apparently she told her, her husband, who's playing bass right alongside her, that this was a song about their dog, which I don't know... That doesn't actually help anything. That makes things stranger. Yeah, I mean, it's... Dog, you make loving fun. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there's so much wrong with the premise of this. Mostly the fact that you've got this idealized view of love Mm -hmm. in the context of infidelity. Right. And so, in essence, you're saying that what love is to you is whatever is giving you, you know, physical or emotional pleasure at the moment, regardless of your commitments. Yeah. And so it's always malleable. It's always changing. It's it's never set. It's always kind of, you're always waiting to be set down in the tall grass so you can do your stuff, I guess. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's super sad that way. I Don't Want to Know is track nine. Here's another Stevie Nicks track. And uh, apparently this was written when her and uh, Lindsey Buckingham were, were performing together as a duet, Buckingham Nicks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Buckingham Nicks actually cut an album back in, I think, 73 or 74. And uh, But it doesn't really live anywhere digitized. I mean, it's not on Spotify. And I don't think you can download it off iTunes or anything. I think some of it may be on YouTube or something. So there's still some way to, to access the stuff now. But... Uh, this was apparently a song that they did write during that era, or Stevie wrote it uh, during that time. And the band chose this one instead of Silver Spring for inclusion, which I think drove her crazy. Because I mean, you know, I mean, she would she would fight for her songs. Obviously, she put a lot into her songwriting. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. In an alternate universe, maybe this is maybe this is an album opener. I think it feels great that way because you don't you. You don't get the same um, style of production on this track. Mm-hmm. Everything's a lot more uh, tight, 
um, especially in relation to things maybe in my mind like space and uh, reverb and that sort of thing, where a lot of other songs on the record have kind of more of an ambience to them. This one kind of sucks all that out, not in a bad way, Mm -hmm. but it kind of just kind of sets you right down maybe in the tracking room and just feels like you're sitting right down there with them. So yeah, I could totally hear this coming out of the gates on the record and then kind of open things up as you go. I mean, all told, one of my main issues with this record is the sequencing. Okay. I think it's a complete mess. Yeah. Um, you know, I get the narrative that we're going through with the record, but dynamically, I think the sequencing on this album is way off. Well, I mean, when you have this many singles on an album, it, it kind of already feels a little bit like a greatest hits collection. Exactly. It just feels like a collection. It just a, it doesn't have the flow that I would personally want to see in an actual album. This is another track that shows um, Stevie Nicks' interest in kind of country music. And uh, she talked about kind of the Everly Brothers and um, the vocal harmonies here kind of being influenced by that with uh, something like Bye Bye Love from 1957. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So, I mean, you know, and this was a band that vocal harmonies seemed to come out of favor as you come toward the end of the 70s and moving into the 80s you don't get the kind of rich vocal dynamics that you get like early in the late 60s with with the Beatles or with Crosby Stills and Nash or with some of those other artists but uh, but you still get a lot of the the kind of group dynamics and things on, on songs like this right exactly I think I don't know just kind of off the top of my head thinking about rolling from the 70s and the 80s maybe we got into more course punk and new wave and that sort of thing but more just kind of artist based mm-hmm. kind of songwriter based whether it's springsteen or patty of course those have bgvs but it's not quite the same approach as you get from groups like crosby stills and nash fleetwood mac yeah um the everly brothers that sort of thing where you've got this colla- super collaborative effort um specifically regarding the vocals right where it feels collaborative where right. everyone is kind of singing along i feel exactly. like maybe this is one of the last great bands to kind of have that as a major component at, at this point in history i could see that track 10 is oh daddy by christine McVie, written supposedly for mick fleetwood uh, in the midst of his relationship issues which is just kind of weird yeah, I mean, it, it is weird. I mean, of course, others have posited that it was written about the person that McVie left her husband for. So it, even there, but it, it's, it's one of the sadder songs on the album, really. Mm-hmm. And it's also a moment where you get that little bit of reflection and perspective that we haven't really gotten much of until this point, except with a couple of the Stevie Nicks tracks. You know, she makes reference to it. But this is one where... It's almost like you get into a relationship and then there's some power dynamics there that you don't you don't feel great about. But then there's those points of reflection like, how can you love me? I don't understand why. Or if there's been a fool around, it's got to be me. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, um, I don't know, there's a little bit of pessimism there, a little bit of, uh, of self-deprecation. And that's something that you, you don't get a whole lot of on rumors. You get a whole lot of people kind of hyping up themselves. And, and you know, and with Christine McVie, you get more of the, the kind of, I guess, idealistic view of love. You make love and fun or, or um, that sort of thing where she's, she's kind of in the, in the throes of a new relationship and just completely enamored with whatever the feelings and sentiments are of that. But here, it's almost like, okay, you... <laughs> You, you've got you've gotten you know a month or two into this relationship and now you're realizing that mm, maybe everything isn't as rosy as as it first seemed yeah possibly reflecting on how fleeting um, those sorts of conflicting desires are yeah I mean as much as we threw her under the bus for songbird rightly so mm-hmm. this is a very strong track I'm not big on the title and I'm not big on the old daddy line or whatever in this track so as- that aside, this track is still really strong. I appreciate um, her uh, degree of honesty and reflection. Again, most likely or possibly as an answer to you make love and fun. Um, it's a really strong and uh, vulnerable track uh, in the context of this record. And it moves us more toward a, a more melancholy conclusion as well. I like there's a reference I want to make here, like the Rolling Stones, there's a song off their Black and Blue album from 76 called Fool to Cry. You know, it's a Rolling Stones ballad. I mean, 
this feels in a similar vein. I mean, I would I would opt for the Rolling Stones song if I were given well, a sure. choice between the two. Yeah. But this feels like, I mean, 76, I mean, they're writing this around the same time, but definitely influenced, I think, by some of the other things that are going on. I'm, yeah, I'm Another still, British blues-interested in, band. Yeah, yeah, I'm still convinced the Stones have played a big part in what we're hearing in Fleetwood Mac at this point. Well, track 11, Gold Dust Woman, this is the last track on the album. You know, we, moving in a more melancholy direction. I mean, I feel like this one leaves us kind of out in the middle of the wilderness a little bit at the end where maybe you started out in a field and the sun is shining and everything and now it's nighttime and you're in the middle of the desert right. and you don't really feel good about anything anymore. This song has so much just atmosphere to yeah. it. It, it. Like you said, it... it, it places you firm, firmly there uh, for better or worse as maybe a sense of isolation, a sense of loneliness. I love the opening lines, rock on gold dust woman, take your silver spoon and dig your grave. I mean, that, that's songwriting right That's there. a pretty metal line right there. <laughs> what I love about it is gold dust is both used as a metaphor for like the search for stardom in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, but it's also slang for cocaine. So you've got this sign of wealth and privilege w- there with the silver spoon, as well as the spoon. I mean, you burn cocaine in a spoon yep. to make crack. So everything is sort of happening right there in an opening line like that. And that's the beauty of something like Gold Dust Woman. One of the things I've always struggled to understand is Stevie Nicks kind of witchy persona. Or, uh-huh. or, or maybe that's not the best word for it. I don't know. With those long dangling cuffs on her arms. Yeah. Kind of pointed. I feel that in this song. I, I feel like that kind of like... <laughs> like there's um, a weird seance going on that's somewhere. That's exactly what I feel. Like she wrote this song around the Ouija board. <laughs> well, there is a sense of honest introspection, a little bit of defiance, determination, yet there's also that sense of helplessness and kind of being lost. Did she make you cry? Did she make you break down, shatter your illusions of love? You know, I noticed that this is the only song on the record that is actually in the third person. Mm-hmm. All the other songs are first person. It's about I, it's about me, or it's about you and what you did or what I want out of a person. But this is the only song that actually, you know, in the language is actually distanced from the things that are happening. And so, you know, linguistically you're actually getting some distance Mm -hmm. and the dynamics of this song really drive that home from kind of that boxy blues guitar thing Mm -hmm. it's a style that Lindsay likes a lot that honestly i find pretty fatiguing in some places but it's placed very well here against mick fleetwood's very tribal kind of drum thing that he has going on in this song i mean obviously if you know the story of rumors, of course, it's not just the interpersonal dynamics, but it's also, I mean, drugs are involved. I think they did have cocaine. I think Stevie Nicks actually became addicted to cocaine at some point, uh, mm-hmm. maybe on the production of this or maybe a little bit before. I think one of the producers joked about having like a little vial of something like always oh available, gosh. like in the production booth, just to kind of keep production moving along on this. So you've got that that addiction it could be drugs, but you've also got this pursuit of fame or art or sex or money, this unresolved desire to pursue. But at the end of the day, I mean, are these pursuits really worth it? Does it fill you? And, you know, do they give comfort or are we left with just kind of that aching howl like we get at the end of the song where it's just, I don't know, like a person in the wilderness at night just kind of stuck. Like they, they got where they wanted to be and yet they get there and, and it's just kind of emptiness. And that's what I get on, on a song like Gold Dust Woman. And that's why I feel like it's the highlight track on the album. That's why I feel like Stevie Nicks is the best songwriter of the mm-hmm. group. And, you know, so for every bit of maybe sentiment or, um, or nostalgia or just enjoyment that you're getting earlier in the record, you end here and it's not a real safe place. Exactly. This is the reality of where all that leads. So stepping back and seeing the album as a whole, I mean, I can see how the pieces fit together. You've kind of got these different writers, lead singers, and you almost get the sense of kind of this argument between lovers going on back and forth. So Mm -hmm. I can see that context of rumors, but I always 
Kyle, looking back at it now, I'm, I'm feeling this tension between what the album seems to encapsulate and express to me. I don't know how people who love this album are connecting with the content of this album. For me, I look at theme, I look at narrative, I look at the content and what is being expressed there. And I see a lot of darkness there. And I mm-hmm. see I see some of the tensions, like this whole idea of kind of the free love, independent spirit of the 60s can't really live within the confines of a relationship built on trust and loyalty and sacrifice and, you know, those kind of antiquated notions, so to speak. Yeah, you I mean, know, but, I, I began to consider that more and more the further we got into the record in preparation and, of course, the conversation that we've been having. Um I, I suspect that people are just going to come to it depending on kind of where they are. You and I both early, mid thirties, mm-hmm. married children. And so we definitely see a lot of these themes a lot clearer, or at least from our perspective, as far as how they approach relationships and trust or distrust, yeah. or of course being brokenhearted or uh, mistreated and that sort of thing. So definitely on the emotional level, it's safe to say people are going to bring uh, where they are, who they are to the record. But like you said, mm-hmm. putting it in the context of when it was released in the 70s and how it's lived through the 80s, 90s, and of course up till now, you can turn on any FM radio and most likely hear one or all of these songs right. on any given day. Yeah. And um, folks who enjoyed this record will just kind of turn it up and, be, and kind of sing along, you know, thunder only, ha-, and they're just <laughs> kind of singing along and humming along, and I'm sitting there hearing the lyrics the way that I've approached the record, not having so much background with it. And I'm like, those are really tough lyrics and heavy themes. And you're just driving down the road singing along with this song. Like the two just don't seem to go together. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling. I mean, I don't know, maybe in the end, that's the beauty of of great art and great music, you know, is that it it allows you to kind of approach it on your own terms and, and, analyze it on its own terms. I would like to think that we have been able to approach the themes and understand the themes the way that they were intended. Mm -hmm. I would hope that we've accomplished that, and I feel like we have. Now, there might be folks out there who might dispute that, but I think we've got a fairly objective view of what's being said in these songs. Yeah, and for me, part part of that tension is the enjoyment of an album like Rumors. Thank you for listening to The Completist. In our next podcast, we will look at the album Master of Puppets by Metallica. In the meantime, please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud. And you can always find us on our website, completistpodcast.com.